Bienvenue and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing quilters. How are we doing? I hope this episode finds you well. I had a time at work this week, and it's projects like The Musical Man that keep me grounded, keep me centered, keep me sane. I hope you have an outlet like that, something that gets the creative juices flowing, keeps your mind off of that which drives you insane. So I hope this this podcast, as always, I've said this before, but I hope this podcast can be a sort of release and escape for you. And thank you again for listening. We have so many personal updates to tackle in this opening segment. So Patty is now officially on maternity leave. She was officially on that leave starting August 1st, and she is going to be returning to us, I believe, on or around November 1st. The big news is that the baby is here. The baby is healthy and the baby is adorable. I cannot even begin to... There's no way to exaggerate it. The baby is an adorable little peanut and I I can't get over how adorable they are. I have photographic evidence. I I could not be more confident in my assessment of this baby. For the record, we did go out of our way to obscure the delivery timeline because Patty and her partner are understandably focused on the privacy of their new family that's something we want to respect. So we won't be revealing the baby's exact birthday or their name, though I still contest that Patty and her partner should have should have gone with either Nathan Detroit or Adelaide's Lament or Timothy Chalamet or a combination of any of those names into one big, crazy long name. We are also officially welcoming Benny to the podcast. Hooray! Welcome, Benny. He only had one week of training. That was last week. And that was the week we recorded the longest episode in our history. (laughs) But you seem ready and raring to go, right, Benny? Yes. To you all, two huge thumbs up from Benny. He's shaking his fists at me with those those thumbs raised to the heavens. Benny, I I realize uh, I'm still getting to know you and that we're getting along famously. I think we both can agree to that. But I'm still getting to know you. How old are you? Okay, so you're holding up. This is a good process. This will make this will work. So you're holding up five fingers, another five, 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 and five. That's it. Okay. Well, <laughs> twenty-five. Simple enough. Uh, twenty-five years old, and yet I wanted to confirm that information because if I if I heard correctly, I believe I heard you say that you have never tried coffee. Flat statement. Never had coffee. Right? Nodding. Great. Well, we are changing that. 
today, aren't we, Betty Boy? Yeah, that's right, we are. So let's raise our mugs. We have a few things to toast here. We have mugs here of five, six, seven, eight coffee. It's been so long since we have just had a nice sip at the beginning of the show. You know, they're our official sponsor. We have segments deep into our episodes where we have individuals come on and extol the virtues of our sponsor, five, six, seven, eight coffee. But when was the last time we just talked about how much we enjoy the product? Well, I, I have no idea, Benny. I don't know if you're going to like it. But, you know, this is the standard. This isn't the Orange Grove. Still not really sure what happened with the Orange Grove campaign. That, that got discontinued. But this is standard, you know, right off the shelf, five, six, seven, eight coffee. So cheers. Let's cheers. Let's toast a few things. So to Patty, to her partner, to their new baby, who is capital A adorable, to Benny starting his three-month run here. We could not be happier to have him. And, yeah, so cheers. Let's taste this coffee together. I just throw it back to the back of my throat. I just give it a big old gulp. That's what I do. It's a nice temperature, too. What do you... Oh, oh yes, of course, obviously. So, Benny, what do you think? I've got one thumb up, two thumbs up. There we go. Fan Shaking his fists with those thumbs raised to the heavens. Fantastic. And then, finally, in this opening segment, we, of course, must address the passing of Harold Prince, who was born on January 30th, 1928, and passed away just this week on July 31st, 2019. He was 91 years old. Now, a lot of people are doing retrospectives on his career, and we are going to be in that group. I want to break down, I want to break down his co-producer, producer, and directorial credits, because when you look at this resume, it's astounding. I'm not sure. I, I'm, I hope beyond hope that he was a good man, and I hope that he, if he was a good man, that he had a good, happy personal life from a professional standpoint. The, the amount of notable shows, even the less notable shows, are fascinating to me within this list. So I just want to provide that rundown. He was the co-producer on The Pajama Game, Damn Yankees, New Girl in Town, uh, West Side Story in 1957, Fiorello Tenderloin, and then West Side Story uh, again in 1960. He was a producer on A Call on Cuprin. Uh, yeah, I'm not, <laughs> not familiar with that, but I assume that I'm saying that correctly. Cuprin. He was a producer also on Take Her, She's Mine. A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. She Loves Me. Fiddler on the Roof. Flora, The Red Menace. It's a Bird, It's a Plane. It's Superman. Cabaret, Zorba, Company, Follies, A Little Night Music. Candide, Pacific Overture, Side by Side by Sondheim. A Doll's Life, Grind, and Hollywood Arms. And he was the director of A Family Affair, She Loves Me, Baker Street. It's a Bird, It's a Plane. It's Superman. Cabaret, 1966, Zorba, Company Follies, A Little Night Music, The Visit, Candide in 1974, Love for Love, Pacific Overtures, Some of My Best Friends, On the 20th Century, Sweeney Todd, Avita, Merrily We Roll Along, Willie Stark, A Doll's Life, Play Memory, Diamonds, Grind, The Phantom of the Opera, Rosa, Cabaret Again in 1987, Grandchild of Kings, for which he also received an adaptation credit, Kiss of the Spider Woman, uh, A Revival of Showboat in 90. The Petrified Prince, Whistle Down the Wind. He revisited Candide in 97. Parade, for which he also received a co-conceiver credit. Uh, he directed a, se a segment of the show Three, uh, that segment being known as The Flight of the Lawn Chair Man. And then we're rounding out these directorial credits with Hollywood Arms, Bounce, Love Music, Paradise Found. And then in 2015, he directed his final show, which was Prince of Broadway, a review that was dedicated to his career. I'm very proud. It makes me, I, I'm filled with pride that someone can accomplish so 
much in their time. Rest in peace, Mr. Prince. Thank you for all of your contributions to the world of theater. Let's talk about uh, this week's subject, Quilters. Show facts. Show me the show facts. Quilters was a 1985 nominee of the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on Broadway on September 25th, 1984 at the Jack Lawrence Theater and ran for exactly 24 performances. Short run, one might say. Short run. The book was written by Molly Newman and Barbara Damashek. It was based on the 1977 book, The Quilters, Women and Domestic Art in Oral History, which was written by Patricia Cooper and Norma Bradley Allen and chronicled the lives of pioneer women living in Texas and New Mexico at the beginning of the 20th century. Music and lyrics were written by Barbara Damashek. The director was Barbara Damashek. She's all over this. Musical directors Barbara Damashek and Michael Faust. The choreographer, none was listed on the Internet Broadway database. Scenic design, Ursula Belden. Lighting design, Alan Lee Hughes. Sound design, no credited sound designer. Costume design, Elizabeth Palmer. And the original Broadway cast included Evelyn Barron, Marjorie Berman, Emily Knapp Chatfield, Alma Cuervo, Melanie Sue Harby, John S. Leonarens, Lynn Loben, Rosemary McNamara, Jennifer Parsons, Lenka Peterson, Joseph A. Watercott, and Catherine Way. And in terms of Tony nods, the show was nominated for Best Musical, Best Book of a Musical, Molly Newman and Barbara Damashek, Best Original Score, Barbara Damashek, Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Lenka Peterson, Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Evelyn Barron. So two nominations within one category. And finally, Best Direction of a Musical, Barbara Damashek. Six nominations, unfortunately zero awards by the end of that ceremony. Let's talk about the plot. So I have some general observations regarding the show and these are all pulled from my experience with the show's book. Now again, as a reminder when I say book, I'm just talking about the script. I come back to this every now and then because I fear that it confuses listeners. I'm not talking about the book on which the show is based. I'm talking about its script. I have no... When I think about it, it's just the silliest thing in the world. We really just should refer to a musical script as its script. But, you know, I could rant and rave about that all day, but I'm not gonna not gonna have you sit through that. Uh, so I went to the Chicago Public Library, Harold Washington Branch downtown, and they have a copy of the show's book slash script on hand. It's part of their closed stacks. So I had to hand over my ID to even look at this publication, and I was able to scan and send this script to myself. I sat down with it, and these plot observations, I'm sort of mixing in a description of the plot with my general observations about the show. This is really all I have to work with, as we'll learn in a bit. Uh, so, general observations. I've said that phrase about four times now. Uh, Benny, what's wrong with me? Oh, Benny, I'm going to need some help here. You, you see how much of a basket case I am, right? Putting all jokes aside, I'm a fucking basket case. Okay, so, general, I'm not going to say that again. All right, I've already explained the premise. Let's actually get into those observations, shall we, Jonathan? Jesus Christ Almighty. Like any musical's book, it doesn't exactly leap off the page. In fact, it reads as quite dull, but a musical is not meant to exist solely on the page. We know this. We know this. So while I have criticisms regarding the book, always take them with a sizable grain of salt. The salt grain in this example is about the size of a bowling ball. Don't lick it. It's important for you to keep that on hand. And then the word quilt is uttered about, oh, I'd say 5,000 times, if not 15,000. 
While there are brief moments where characters actually look each other in the eye and exchange lines of dialogue, Quilters is not interested in traditional scene work. Instead, it forces the cast to stare straight out at the audience and deliver about, oh, I'd say 5,000 monologues, if not 15,000, about what it's like to be a woman on the frontier. And if you've ever had to sit through a production of Oh, let's say the Spoon River Anthology, you'll know how entertaining it is to watch actors who can only relate to a gaping, yawning void. What Quilters is especially interested in is pushing its particular brand of theatrical vocabulary. There are no scenes because the show is separated into blocks. Blocks is the fetch of quilters. Everyone is constantly announcing the start of a new block. Block one, block seven, block 15. It's all part and parcel of the show's obsession with its theme, which is, huh, that theme being? That's right, quilts, correct. Because quilts are made up of blocks, don't you know? And each block is a story that contributes to a greater work. See this block? It's part of a calico dress I stole from a dying bride. Isn't that a good story? It's part of our family history now. Put it in the block. Uh, uh. But we don't just have blocks in this show. No, 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 no. That would be ridiculous. We also have what are known as shadow blocks, which are described in the stage directions as, quote, nonverbal representations of the darker side of the women's rites of passage. The events depicted during shadow blocks are not always tragic, but we should get a sense of the unspoken fears involved and the presence of mystery and death, quote. Damashek goes on to insist shadow blocks should be lit differently than traditional blocks, comparing them to sepia-toned photographs. It's it's sweaty, is what it is. Like, I get it. You know, you need to establish a certain aesthetic. I, I completely understand that. But I've never been a fan of chatty stage directions. It always feels like an attempt to forestall our getting back to the proper text. You know, a single shaft of silver moonlight pierces through the broken yellowed blinds of Arthur Humpback's dingy colonial-style one-bedroom apartment. The moonlight is insistent, yet humble. Enough, Eugene O'Neill. Enough. Every member of the cast is required to play half a dozen characters, if not more, and I cannot for the life of me understand why. The vast majority of these characters are quickly drawn, highly interchangeable pioneer women. Some are younger than others, some are older, but you'd be hard-pressed as an actor to make each role pop. There are just way too many, especially when you consider none of them are on stage for very long. There is obvious promise in a work that surveys the American frontier and the experiences of the women who braved it. I'm not here to say otherwise. I don't mean to belittle or diminish the inherent premise here, but you cannot expect me to stay invested after training me to expect the board will be cleared every few minutes. You bring on new characters that are on stage for maybe two to four minutes and then they're gone, replaced by entirely new people. It's very hard for me to kind of get my my hooks in him with, with that sort of structure. You get what I'm saying. If Quilters had focused instead on a distinct group of women living within a single community, it would have a much easier time of earning our attention and our empathy. We want to pay attention. We want to care. Believe me, I do. This is starting to sound suspiciously like my final thoughts. So I'm going to pivot and focus on Act 1. So Act 1, a particularly harrowing block from Act 1, involves a girl named Katie. Now, Katie spends her seventh birthday trying to keep her sister, Polly, alive during a blizzard. It's 30 below outside, and the cows are quickly freezing to death. Uh, are the cows... 
Represented on stage by women with blankets draped over their backs? Absolutely. And the cows, do they die right in front of us? Oh, they absolutely do. Uh, one of the stage directions reads as follows, quote, The calf nudges its dead mother's teats gently, then bleats silently and falls to its knees, its head on its mother's belly, quote. Hmm. Katie's father skins the cows with, quote, oversized wooden sewing scissors, quote, by stabbing them, slitting them, slitting them up to their throats and removing the blankets. These skins are then tossed onto the roof of their home to prevent any additional cold from seeping in. At one point, Katie calls out to her father, not knowing he too has frozen to death. The frontier will fuck you up. The sequence ends with Katie pounding on her sister's body in a final attempt to keep her alive, only to give up out of sheer exhaustion. For some reason, the script doesn't count Katie and Polly's story as a shadow block. Not dark enough, I guess. Other Act 1 highlights include a strange, a very strange shadow block about a priest who repeatedly loses his grip on a baby while attempting to baptize her in a river? One block concerns a young girl learning about her biological mother. The information conveyed by the girl's adoptive mother is affecting, but we don't come to the theater to have drama described to us. Her adoptive mother just has this long monologue where she tells the girl about her mother. We want to see it. We don't want to hear about it. Show, don't tell. It's a classic phrase. Might want to adopt it. In another block, young girls ostracize anyone who admits to having experienced their first period. But the tables are eventually turned when the one girl who hasn't had her period winds up feeling ostracized. Tables! Turning! Some girls are told their periods are a curse from God, while others are told they are a gift from God. Religion is fun like that. I wouldn't say this sequence is entertaining, but I did like how it explored an experience all women can relate to, not just women who grew up in the old-timey frontier of the early 1900s. No offense, Katie and Polly. Uh, I'm sure many people have had their fathers freeze to death while they were out skinning cows. I, I personally... I don't know any of those people, so... And then there's Jamie's 21st birthday freedom quilt party. Whoop, whoop! Which sees a group of women presenting quilt blocks as a way to toast slash honor their unseen pal, Jamie. It gets weird. Everyone is seemingly in love with Jamie, who I imagine looks exactly like Devin Sawa in Wild America. Even Jamie's sister, Molly, seems to have a thing for him, as evidenced by her monologue. She actually has a line I really like a lot. This stuck out to me, and I immediately wanted to write it down. So this is separate from her weird incestual instincts. I just really like this on its own. The line is as follows. How I envy you, Jamie, not belonging to nobody and not having nobody telling you what to do all the time. Seems like I'm never going to have my freedom. Everything a girl ever does belongs to someone else, don't you know? And that's, that's the part of it that really sticks out to me. Everything a girl ever does belongs to someone else. That's a line that really speaks to the experiences of a frontier woman in the 1900s, of course, but it absolutely, I'm sure many people, many women in 2019 feel the exact same way. 
You know, that idea of why does everything I have, why is it expected that everything I do is supposed to be in service to someone else? You know, my family, my husband, my partner, my children, women, I think, have a very hard time. I think it's safe to say just having things that are their own without being thought of as selfish or walking away from the other elements of their life that demand their attention. Oh, how could you go off and do X and such and the other? Don't you need to be home with your family? I'm sure it's exhausting. <laughs> I'm not I'm not sure about it. I'm convinced. Oh goodness gracious. But then, okay, so like, to go back to the overall monologue for this character, uh, oh boy. So again, this is Jamie's sister Molly we're talking about. After after this line, that really good line that I liked, her monologue takes a turn because she keeps insisting she'll never be married. And isn't it funny, Jamie, I'm paraphrasing, but the monologue kind of boils down to, isn't it funny, Jamie, how one time we were in town and that man thought we were husband and wife? I mean, (laughs) I was so embarrassed. I mean, weren't you? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe it's something we should consider. Oh, Jamie, what fun we have. Let's travel to faraway places together, seeing as how I'm never getting married. Never, 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 ever, ever, ever. I mean, who, who could compare to Jamie? He's he's a man's man. Jamie, look at you. <laughs> he's the best man I'll ever know. It's fucking bananas. It's crazy. During this birthday party, we also hear from a character named Ellie, who couldn't be more clear about her love for our boy if she tried. Her quote from the script is, I thought we really had something special. Well, I'm not gonna beg you. I still have my pride, but I'm here, and I'm sowing the wild goose chase pattern into my block because sometimes that's what loving you feels like. And I'll tell you something else. If I get near that simp I hear you're fiddling with, I'm going to tear her hair out. You'll always belong to me, Jamie, no matter how free you think you are. That's a scary... That's a scary-ass monologue. If someone was toasting me, and they say, I'm going to tear, ooh, that fucking simp that you're walking around, ooh, if I fucking get my hands on her hair, it's going to be ripped out of her scalp, Jamie. I would ask why Jamie's birthday serves as the act one closer, but I'm pretty sure quilters would only respond by saying, eh, why not? Act two highlights include additional opportunities for women to play men, including one block where a clumsy quilter is courted by a sexy cowboy. <laughs> Subversive homoeroticism, anyone? An entire block dedicated to Mabel Louise, who is pregnant with her 12th child and fears going through labor again will permanently impair her. When Mabel's doctor refuses to perform an abortion, she turns to her sister, Harriet, who provides the recipe for an herbal concoction that results in a miscarriage. The recipe includes human hair, and we see a woman offer her hair up so that it may be cut and added to the recipe. While writhing in pain during her miscarriage, Mabel is surrounded by the other women in the cast who raise their skirts to conceal her from the audience while chanting the names of their dead children. Again, I will say, frontier times were fucking wild. Jesus Christ. Then there's Cassie's monologue. We have a character known as Cassie. Her monologue boils down to, My husband was a wonderful man who, while working the rails one day, was hit by a train. The other rail workers brought his body home in a bushel basket, and the only way I was able to cope was by quilting. (laughs) Dark, I would say. Dark monologue. Sad. 
sad monologue. We close out the evening with a shadow block known as Crosses and Losses. The stage directions for this segment are so ambitiously bonkers, I can barely follow what's going on when I read the script. But in summary, a spark from a passing train causes an entire valley to go up in flames, and the cast uses quilt fabrics to convey that everyone is being essentially burnt alive. There's a length of fabric known as the fire strip that represents the fire itself, and I believe that moves slowly downstage as if the fire is making its way towards you. It's this inevitable force that you cannot escape from. And actors are supposed to wear strips of dark fabric to indicate where they have been touched by the fire. So you could presumably wrap those around your arms, your head, you know, lots of options there. One character has her hair catch on fire while she's trying to save someone on stage. I have no clue how you pull that off. Dialogue from this block (laughs) includes this horrifying little nugget. When I cut the boots off his feet that night, the skin all the way to his boot tops came off with him. As if that weren't enough, at one point the book flat out says, okay, this is where, (laughs) I'm paraphrasing again, but the book basically says, okay, this is where the cast destroys the entire set. Just rip everything apart, go nuts. How could anyone possibly afford to do that night after night? Are you kidding me with this? I have to assume most productions of Quilters ignore about 90% of these stage directions, but I don't think anything beats the saga of Mrs. Seeley and the Judge, a married couple in their 70s who spend the entire night successfully beating back this fire, the flames, only to die in their sleep after going to bed. They saved their home and the homes of their neighbors, and then they died in their sleep. Good night, my love. Good night, my love. Dead. Actually, now that I think about it, very romantic. <laughs> if I could spend, if I knew that my last night on Earth, if I was in my 70s, and the last night I had on Earth was spent beating back the flames of a fucking valley fire so as to protect my home and the homes of others, that's, that's you're, that, you're fighting for humanity. And then you go to bed with the person that you love, and you both die in your sleep? That's its own musical. That's its own musical. I'm just saying it right now. So that's my summary of the plot mixed in with a lot of observations I have about the show, obviously. Obviously. So... The show was never recorded for the purposes of a cast recording, so in terms of my research sources, that wasn't an option for me. And it was also not represented at the 1985 Tony Awards because it had already long since closed. I mean, again, 24 performances, I believe, was the number I threw out at the beginning. Uh, So I did, I scanned and I read the original book, the script by Barbara Damashek. We've covered that. I also tried watching a high school production that's available via YouTube, but the audio and video were not in sync, so yeah, I did not follow through on that. Sorry to report. Now, I can't really give you a deconstruction of the score, right? I can't go song by song through this show, so the least that I can do is just list the songs, right? Those are readily available to me. Those were included as part of the the appendices in that script I scanned. So let's just go through the, the, the names of these songs, shall we? So we got Rocky Road, Little Babes, Thread the Needle, Cornelia Song, Windmill, Washed in the Blood, Butterfly Song, Pieces of Children's Lives, Green, 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 The Needle's Eye, Quiltin' and Dreamin', 
pieces of lives. Every log in my house never grow old. You heard a clip of this at the top of the show, which was from a performance by the Chicago Chamber Choir. And then rounding out these songs, we have Who Will Count the Stitches, The Lord Don't Rain Down Manna, Dandelion, Everything Has a Time, A Reprise of Pieces of Lives, and then the show closes out with Hands All Around. And that's it. That's all I can really say about Quilter. So we are now going to throw it to our sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Let's hear a word from them. Take it away. Hello, it's me, Glinda, from the popular film. (laughs) No, future film. (laughs) Perhaps they'll cast me in it. No, I'm from the stage musical, hopefully becoming a film soon. Um, Wicked, don't you know? Yes, it's me, Glinda. (laughs) Don't you like my pretty dress? Don't you like my pretty hair? Don't you like my pretty makeup job? And my little uh, (laughs) tiara? (laughs) My name is Glinda. Uh, We've established that. But I I just want to impress that upon you in case you haven't heard about me. But who has hasn't heard about me, Glinda. I'm so popular. That's a word I've thrown around a few times, popular. And that's a word that I want to talk about today because I'm your sponsor. I'm your magical, whimsical, lovable sponsor. Your spokeswoman for our five, six, seven, eight coffee this week. <laughs> and uh, it's a popular brand. So why wouldn't a popular girl like me, who's so popular with all the boys at her school, why wouldn't I drink the most popular coffee brand on the earth? <laughs> it's the most popular brand because it's rich. And <laughs> don't you know that I like rich? And it's uh, it's saucy. Yeah, it's got a real bite to it. And I think I do too. Ah, don't mess with me. Ah, ah. So, <laughs> I just, I'm just here to say that if you want to be like me, if you want to be popular, and I think you do, I'm just not as quite as popular, quite as popular as me. If you gotta, you know, if you wanna, if you wanna try, if you wanna try and reach for the stars and be as popular as me, maybe I'll drink some of that coffee. Five, six, seven, eight. You can count on it, but you can't count on me because I'm rising above you, drones. Yes, I'm gonna be a little queen bee. <laughs> you ever seen that uh, green girl walk around? Uh, you know, she doesn't drink that coffee. She's always talking about how I don't watch TV. <laughs> I don't drink coffee. <laughs> That's stupid. You should be like me, Glinda. Don't be like the green girl. Green girl. Barf. Barfarama. Hashtag V-O-M-I-T. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm going to shut up now because I'm just going to lean back on a little left seat and think about how popular I am. <laughs> it's okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> Final thoughts on quilters. That was a weird one. (laughs) Benny, I I don't normally comment on the five, six, seven, eight segments, but that was incomprehensible. (laughs) Don't tell her. No, don't don't get her back. What are you doing? Stop. Don't you mess with me. This is your first week, Buster Brown. You're going to be getting a postcard from me. Postcard from Buster Brown? I don't think so. You're going to be getting a postcard from me in jail. Would I throw you in jail, Benny? Don't you tell her I said that. You're messing with me. I like Benny. We're getting locked. So as a reminder, that was a weird one. Quilters is based on the quilters, women and domestic art. And that is a collection of interviews that gave women the opportunity to speak candidly about their experiences. We don't spend nearly enough time giving women, especially elderly women, they were talking with women in their 70s and 80s, a platform in 2019. So I'm glad Patricia Cooper and Norma Bradley Allen sat down with their interview subjects in 1977. But when you adapt those interviews for the stage, you actually have to adapt them. You have to turn them into something new, something that naturally aligns itself with the conventions of theater. It's one thing to read an interview, you know, or watch one as part of a documentary, but audiences don't want to sit through an endless series of monologues. A traditional show 
you can maybe get away with one, two, three, but an entire evening, that's a lot. You're really asking a lot. It's static in more ways than one. I'm not saying Quilters is totally devoid of theatricality. It's just weird to me how it contains that theatricality to a few key sequences. Yes to dramatizing this stories, but yes to leaning even more into the appealing capital D drama of theater. Really, I just want proper scenes. Have the actors bouncing off each other. That's what theater is. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we need a counterpoint. I received this email from listener Zachary Barr, who is quite familiar with a youth theater company known as Studio East out of Kirkland, Washington. Studio East has been staging quilters off and on since the mid-90s, and the only show the company has produced more frequently is Into the Woods. But enough of my summarizing, let's dig into the email proper. Zachary writes, I have never even heard of another company producing quilters, and assumed someone at the studio was the author when I first saw it. But despite that obscurity, it's become a sort of rite of passage for the young actresses at the company. The show is typically cast with youth actors approximately ages 13 to 18 in all roles, save for the character Sarah, who is played by an adult, typically a faculty member. The cast is also vastly expanded, usually to around 12 to 15 people. The show is revered at the studio for being much more ensemble-driven, not to mention more serious in tone than most of the other rep for the company, stuff like The Wizard of Oz or Annie. Eastside Seattle has more than a few youth theater companies, but none of them do anything like quilters, so it does tend to draw big crowds, both in its audition pools and in its audiences. Regarding the shadow blocks, they still do the full childbirth moment and the later counting our dead kids moment with this age group. Rite of passage is exactly the term for the show. Teen girls performing in it are typically working on material directly about being a woman for the first time. The end product ends up being an ethereal and modestly beautiful production. It's a damn shame that no cast recording exists because Never Grow Old, which comes halfway through the second act, is an astoundingly gorgeous song. The fact that you wrote that, Zach, is why I thought to include a clip at the beginning. I wanted to make sure we at least got to hear that song, because I know you love it so much. And he goes on to say, I absolutely understand why quilters didn't do well on Broadway, especially in the spectacle-stuffed 1980s, but there's a place for it today, probably. I'm surprised City Center Encores hasn't gotten around to it, or even York Theatre Company's Musicals in Mufti series. To interrupt, this is a very good point, and it surprises me as well, Zach. I think Encores could do a lot with this show. Now, getting back to the email. I would certainly put money down that there will eventually be some 1996 Chicago revival sort of production that will suddenly make people wonder why they've been sleeping on a solid musical for so long. Dry as it might be to read the script alone, I would defend the promise of the show. That's my any and all thoughts. As requested, I asked him to reach out to me with these thoughts. Hopefully that helps out. You have my permission to read any or none of this on the podcast. Thank you for giving that to me, Zach. I've enjoyed listening so far. I started at Sweeney Todd and have yet to binge the episodes before that one. Excited to hear if you're as ambivalent on Rent as I am. Well, Zach, I think I was somewhat ambivalent in regards to Rent, so hopefully we are basically in alignment there. Thank you for sharing these thoughts on Quilters. They definitely gave me pause in regards to my initial dismissal of the show. My initial dismissal is also the name of my new folk band, by the way. It's on Spotify. We are on Spotify. 
Looping back to the Studio East Youth Theater that Zach mentioned, I took a look at their 2019-2020 season and am 100% on board and intrigued. Seussical the Musical, Twas the Night, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, The Tempest, Sweeney Todd, The Bullied Plays, and Annie. I need to see kids performing Sweeney Todd immediately. Are you kidding me? There's no way that wasn't the golden goose for kids auditioning this year. That show opens on March 20th, 2020 and runs through April 4th. Go to studioeast.org. That's studio-east.org for more info. Am I just plugging the theater at this point? Yes. I would absolutely see these shows. Are you kidding me? I ask you again. They've done Les Miserables. They're doing it. They're doing it right now. So as a reminder, 1985, the winner, we visited this now three times. We have visited this season three times. So we should all know the winner of the 1985 Best Musical Award, right? It was Big River, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, and the other nominees that year were Grind and Leader of the Pack. Ultimately, you know, getting Grind, bringing Grind back up and connecting that back to Hal Prince's career, the more I think about it, I feel like Grind is the more... It's far more compelling, it's messy, it's weirder than Big River, and I think Grind is going out of its way to say more than Big River ever could, because at the end of the day, what is Big River but children's theater? It's, it's really nothing more than children's theater, and yet it was presented to us as if it was, I don't know, some adult enterprise. I'm not a fan of Big River, I think you can go back to that episode and you can remind yourself of that. So I, I think ultimately Grind probably should have taken home the award over Big River, I'm, I'm sure I've already said that, but just want to put that out there again. I don't necessarily think Quilters, I don't think there was any chance that it was going to rise above the pack. I'm glad that Zach wrote in to say that the show is better than my initial instincts would lead me to believe, but I don't think Best Musical was ever going to be in the cards for it. Now, when it comes to ranking the show, I cannot judge a show based solely on a reading of its script, so I must relegate Quilters to the Phantom Zone alongside Big Deal and James Joyce's The Dead. It's only fair. For all I know, I'll watch a production of Quilters at some point and be totally moved by it, and when that day comes, I'll be sure to update this ranking. But until then, to the Phantom Zone with you, my dear quilters, be gone and farewell. Now, when it comes to the show-related ephemera, I would like to perform an Act 1 monologue. I've learned that it is an overdone audition piece for Studio East, uh, but I'm going to offer my take on it anyway. Many a monologue can be, you know, approached in a fresh way. You know, maybe we've heard it a million million times, but I like to think that I've got a little spin on it that I'd like to uh, present to you down to the bayou. Now, this is this was written for a character named Annie. So, Benny, can we get some appropriate frontier kind of country fiddle music for this reading? Oh, that's nice. Thank you very much, Benny. So, without further ado, my name is Jonathan Pernasek. I am represented by no one because I am not a professional working actor at this point in my life. But here is my reading of the Annie monologue from Quilters. My ambition is to become a doctor, like my father. I'm my father's girl. My greatest accomplishment was when I was 10 years old and was successful in chopping off a chicken's head and then dressing it for a chicken dinner. My mother tries to make me do quilts all the time, but I don't want nothing to do with it. I told her never in my life will I stick my fingers till they bleed. Very definitely. My sister Flora is a real good quilter, I guess. Mother says so all the time. Flora's favorite pattern. 
is the sun bonnet sue. Mother taught her how to do applique blocks, and since then, she's made probably a dozen sun bonnet sue quilts. You've seen them. They're like little dolls turned sideways with big sun bonnets on. Flora makes each one different. In one, her little foot is turned this way or that, or she'll give her a little parasol or turn the hat a little bit. People think they are so cute. She made one for everybody in the family, so now there are little sunbonnet suit quilts all over the house. She made a couple of them for her friends, and last spring, when we all got promoted at school, she presented one to her teacher. I nearly died. And she's still at it. Let me tell you, she is driving me crazy with her sunbonnet suits. So I decided to make one quilt and give it to Flora. Like I said, I'm not such a good quilter as her, but I knew just what I wanted to do with this one. It's real small twin bed size. I finished it and put it on her bed this morning, but I don't think she's seen it yet. I guess I done some new things with Sunbonnet Sue. I call it the demise of Sunbonnet Sue. Each little block is different, just like Florida does it. I've got a block of her hanging, another one with a knife in her chest, eaten by a snake, eaten by a frog, struck by lightning, and burned up. I'm sort of proud of it. You should see it. <coughs> It turned out real good. Thank you very much. No, 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 please. Hold your applause. I cannot hear it. This is a podcast. I'm just imagining it in my head, and that is more than enough. Please, no, stop. Stop applauding. I can't hear you, sillies. It's a podcast. You're just going to wear yourself out and make yourself look strange. You know, at the office or the gym, if you're at home. All right, okay, go ahead. If you're at home and in, in private, that's fine. Okay, okay, all right. Now stop. To determine which show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator. I named after that classic Rogers and Hammerstein show. Didn't they like kill their aunt or something? Am I making that up? Everyone ready? Then away we go. Okay, listeners, I have hopped off of the musical carousel, and I have landed on a nominee from 1983, and that nominee ran for 199 performances. Oh, they were so excited. They were going to have a cake on their 200th performance, and then they... And the announcements came out. Oh, boy. I'm telling you right now. I'm spoiling it for you right now. We have another Phantom Zone candidate on our hands because it's 1983's Merlin, which I know I know, starred a real magician and also Cheetah Rivera as Morgana, I believe. I don't think I'm making that of. I, I've seen her big villain number, so we're, we, we are absolutely going to be talking about that. So thank you for listening as always. That episode, by the way, our Merlin episode, that is going to drop August 21st because we are going to be taking another week off. Chris and I have wedding number two, but then I'm going to be back full force consistently week to week for the foreseeable future. Now, if you want to support the show, you can do that in a variety of ways. You can go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod. Now, I want to say this. The fee 
feed uh, used to be known, the Patreon feed, when you subscribe, that used to show up as the Musical Man Patreon RSS feed. Which, that's a little dull, isn't it? Therefore, the feed is now known as the Musical Man Plus. Unoriginal? Yes. Exciting? No. Simpler? Most definitely. So if you become a $1 a month donor, you're going to get weekly verbal shoutouts. So let's do that right now. Jordan, formerly known as Hey What Up, Ashley, Chris JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, Marisol. If you want to hear your name in the mix, give a dollar a month. I highly encourage it. You won't just get that, though. You're going to get bonus material. You're going to get a bonus episode about the 73rd Annual Tony Awards, and you're going to get a special episode deconstructing the first trailer for the film Cats. If you give $3 a month, you will get a special musical shout-out on the show in the style of a musical theater character or composer that you choose. If you donate $5 a month, not only do you get to determine what show we talk about on the podcast, but you get access to all 12 episodes of the first season of All I Ask of You, a special advice show hosted by by none other than the Phantom of the Opera. And if you give $10 a month, you get access to The Snow Club, a special series dedicated to Broadway shows that were never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. Our most recent episode that dropped was dedicated to Jekyll and Hyde, and then our subject for the month of August is going to be Allegiance, just to let you know about that. Your donations would go toward the purchase of rare cast recordings, movie rentals, and they would also help to offset Podbean hosting costs. If we ever get to a point where we are bringing in $100 or more in total monthly donations. It will result in my producing M3, the movie musical man. This is a monthly series for which I will watch trilogies of musicals that are tied by a common theme. I actually wrote that out because I've had such a hard time pitching that in a concise manner. If you are listening to the show through Apple Podcasts, there's a very easy, free way to support the show. Please, if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, write a five-star review. Simply, if anything, because it just makes me happy to read that positive feedback. If we ever get to 30 written five-star reviews. It will result in my uh, recording a special episode dedicated to the Disney Descendants trilogy. That's right. If you are streaming, that is either through musicalmanpod.podbean.com or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod. Write to us via email musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Huh? And thank you to Benny. I'm going to start. We should have been thanking Patty at the end of the show every single week. I cannot believe some of these things I come up with this deep into the show's run. We're going to be thanking the engineer and the the producer, Patty, Benny. We're thanking you here right now. And Alex Green, thank you for our beautiful logo. And Zach Little, thank you for our beautiful music. And thank you for that doorbell. Oh, but no, really, no, no thank you to that doorbell because you know what that sound means. Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting, huh? Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, off theater, and good night. <laughs>